Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talent with me Fiona Abrahams where I'm deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many skilled and talented individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series I will be reaching out to the global community, exploring the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on their futures and the future of the industry as we navigate the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 9 of Raw Talent, where we are back in London, sneaking a peek behind the scenes at emerging menswear brand Basic Rights with MD Jack Gove. Basic Rights was founded in New York and launched in Electric Lady Studios in 2016 by guitarist Freddie Cowan of The Vaccines before relocating to East London in 2018. They see menswear through the eyes of women and believe in style over fashion with a focus on fabric, fit and finish. Ethical transparency and sustainable practices are at the forefront of the brand's values in creating elevated essentials designed as off-duty uniforms for modern creatives. The message is about getting the basics right. Welcome to All Talent. Hi, hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's a bit of a miserable Monday for it, unfortunately. The weather's not on our side today. No, not today. But it is, um, it's the 22nd of February today. Um, and that is now less than a month away from the spring equinox, which for me is like a big moment of optimism in the year, because it is the moment where for six months then afterwards, the days are longer than the nights. So for me, I'm actually sort of feeling quite optimistic. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And I feel exactly the same way. I love this time of year where we're rolling towards long days and short nights. Yeah, it's just exactly. the best feeling. And actually, exactly. it feels like it's it's time is going so fast that we're going to be there before we know it. So Exactly. Yeah. 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 And also, yeah. of course, it means we're coming towards the end of lockdown, which will be even better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. However long that we've got no idea how long that's going to last. No it definitely feels as if yeah, there's something to be optimistic around in the future. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So um, we were introduced through a mutual contact, which we were just talking about because we were reminiscing yeah. back in 2018, who yeah, thought yeah. that our values uh, might be aligned. Um, I'm going to rewind back to the beginning of um, your your career. You studied philosophy and theology at Oxford. Um, yeah. Two of my favourite subjects, by the way, which means we, of course, always end up talking the hind leg off a donkey in nearly every call. Um, That's true. So, Dickersley, you also explored your passion for music, playing with groups around the world, and you were in a band. I wasn't actually in a band. No, I was a singer. Um, I was in. I was in a classical group. I was in. I was in one of those sort of you know one of those uh, like old school choirs that sings like sixteenth century polyphony. So I mean that that's that's what I did. Um, because back as a, yeah, because um, back back then um, when I was at university, I had a scholarship to to sing and um, and I mean sort of as a student, I kept super busy the whole time. So I was always playing sports. Um, I wrote for the student paper. I was the film film editor, so I kind of reviewed films for them. Um, 
I was in different plays, I was in operas, I was in stuff like that. But the singing bit and, um, was my biggest commitment. And, and it sort of, it was, you know, like two or three hours a day, every single day, which is a massive commitment as a student where basically wow. you wanted like, you know, sort of, um, at least, you know, if you study philosophy and theology, you want to like kick back for six days out of seven and then panic for one day out of seven to get everything done. <laughs> that was kind of the routine. But um, but no, I, that's right. I was a, I was a musician, but it was sort of, of the classical kind um, rather than oh, anything else. Nice. Interesting. Yeah. And sort of following an MBA in business administration and a dissertation in the study of omnichannel retail strategies in British luxury men's in the British luxury menswear market if I can say it (laughs) what did you learn from your experience there um well I mean Mr Porter's obviously a massive name in our industry Mm. it's kind of like one of the names um and it was probably for that reason that I wanted to join in the first place I just thought that it would be a a place where I could kind of go and learn from some amazing people and gain some experience but the truth is that it was actually very short-lived I mean I I I ended up leaving before my um before my probation even finished so it was was a sub three months I was barely there at all and 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 because of the fact that I, I felt I learned one extremely important lesson and I didn't didn't need to hang out, hang about and kind of have it repeated to me again and again. And really it's about the, the importance of the right size and type of company for people, because it's not going to be something that works for everybody. I mean, um, mm. I suppose I'm somebody who, firstly, I'm a generalist um, and I'm somebody who has um, quite kind of a, an on, entrepreneurial spirit, entrepreneurial mindset in a sense. Um, and that's not a natural fit for a large established company that's kind of got, you know, processes in place and hierarchies and stuff like that. I just felt like for me, like sort of trying to fit into a, into sort of being a specialist was like taking a, you know, kind of um, a square peg and put it into a round mm. hole. So it just, it just wasn't right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Although having said that, um, despite it being an incredibly short experience, it's a very positive one in my memory. I mean, the people I worked with were superb. They were just lovely and extremely good at what they did and and extremely knowledgeable about, obviously, as you would expect, about this space. I mean, Mr. Porter really is, is the sort of, you know, it's like the um, the, the gold standard for for, um, for menswear here, at least, I think. Um, yeah. Probably around the globe as well, actually. I mean, there's an argument to be made for it. So, I mean, although it was very short, it was a sweet experience and it, and it kind of allowed allowed me to, to it, it allowed me to kind of realize the importance of um, if you're wired like me to, to to find a company that is going to be more of a fit for, for for that and and for me it was looking for a smaller company where I could sort of be that generalist stretch my legs learn every day do something different every day um, and I couldn't see that happening in a large company so that's yeah. the big thing I learned I think yeah and I think it's a very valuable insight to share um for for people thinking about taking their next step or changing roles or job hunting it's so important to um follow what suits you and to recognize be able to self-analyze and know what you're good at and and where you thrive it's one of the most important things so how did that lead to the opportunity at basic rights how did that come about uh, well, I mean, it was sort of a chance, really. I mean, um, like you said, I just finished an MBA um, uh, before I kind of had my couple of months at Mr. P. Um, and yeah. and while, I, while I was there, it was sort of my first um, first work in the menswear, um, menswear space. It's sort of been developing a real interest in, in menswear um, th- throughout my 20s, really. And um, f- my, my best mate from, from uh, the time when I was an undergraduate had gone to school with this guy who... Uh, 
you know, six months before um, had set up a label called Basic Rights. He played in some band called The Vaccines who I'd never heard of. <laughs> and he said that given my interest in menswear and given my um, his friend's new label um, and the fact he thought we'd both get on, he said, why don't you guys go for a drink together and, and, and chat? So we did. And, um, and, and that's when I met Freddie, who was the founder of Basic Rights. He's, um, he's our creative director and I suppose my sort of um, uh, partner in terms of kind of running the business. Um, mm. I suppose I'm in charge of the business side and he's in charge of the creative side. And mm. it's, it's a partnership that works really well. Um, but we we met um, and he sort of, he, he told me about the, the label and he told me about the plans for the label and why he'd set us up in the first place. And he told me all about kind of the, you know, kind of the, the story that sort of led to its, uh, its launch. He told me about the customer he was trying to reach, told me about the kind of vision for the product. And he, and, um, and he asked my view about it. And we just sort of had one of those conversations that, um, that kind of starts off. And from the beginning, you just know it's going to be an interesting conversation. And then kind of before you know it, like two, three, four hours has passed and, and, and you can't really remember exactly what it is you covered, but you just know that it's been, you know, you've covered some yeah. interesting ground. And, um, and so I think he, like, we, you know, after we kind of met for that first time, um, uh, and given the fact the label really was very nascent to that point, I mean, it had launched, as you said at the beginning, it launched in New York. Um, and what was the inspiration he, behind it? What did lead him to start it up? Yeah, well, I mean, so, so Freddie is a musician. Um, mm. he, he kind of, uh, and he plays the guitar, and like I said, in, in the vaccine, so my um, ignorance of five years ago aside, they're a very well-known band. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm sort of quite ignorant of most things relating to popular culture, actually, to be honest. <laughs> um, in this context, actually. I think so, yeah. So. Sort of because you might have been intimidated or in awe, and the fact that you had no idea was probably actually maybe. Weird. Yeah, I think so. But um, but like because you know you sort of come into it no pretenses and no kind of you know and you can just be yeah. honest, I guess. And and so um, the, the the story of it really is that is that um, one of the things that he explained to me in that first meeting that we've been kind of you know we've spoken about a fair amount since was that um, if you are a a musician like him, um, then your life really is split between two different. Um, uh, two different kinds of work. Um, one is recording music, and then the other part is taking the music you've recorded and touring it. Um, and the first part is the part where you um, kind of where all of the creative energy is 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 focused. It's the bit when it costs you money because if you're a band, you have to you know mm. pay for you know producers and studios and all of these things. Um, yeah. And then the second part is the is the place where it's um, less out and out creative. Um, it's more about um, you know, kind of it's more about you know the kind of the performing aspect of it is the part in which you earn your money and um, when you go and mm. take your um take your music and tour around the world um so freddie told me that when he was in um he and the band were engaged in that first part of the musician's life which is the recording part um this is for the band's third album back in sort of like i think probably about 2014 or something like that 2015 maybe um they were living in new york and recording um uh, kind of like spending day and night in the studio and um for like the way Freddie talks about it is that that's a process which is it's it's immensely intense in terms of the creative requirement and the effort that you have to put in um uh you know sort of cre creating something you know which in that case is, is an album you sort of have to turn up and bring everything you've got to the studio and then you have to do it the next day and you have to do it the next day and you have to do it the next day and one of the things that he kind of um he realized at the time when he was recording this album was that the wardrobe that he had didn't 
it didn't serve him the way that he needed to be served. Um, and what I mean by that is that is that he didn't he couldn't find a, a single label in which he could just have almost like a uniform of really like excellent core fam, like foundational pieces that he could just throw on and then never think about for the rest of the day. Because he sort of he was of the of the thought that you know you, you sort of only have so many decisions that you can make in a given day. It's a finite resource, you know, kind of your mental capacity. And he didn't want to give a single bit of it over to trying to look good in the morning or trying to kind of you know put something together that that was going to serve him that day. He just wanted something that he could throw on without any decision mm. and then turn up and then and then he would have that bit more to to give. Um, and and so um so he realized there was sort of nothing out there. Um, well, it, nothing out there that made sense anyway. I mean, the only, the only labels he was able to find that kind of, that did the job in terms of the product itself were what he described as being these Japanese reproduction labels. And so what these, you know, I mean, Japanese menswear and the sort of, you know, like the, the obsessive sort of, um, uh, the, the obsession around quality that they have within that market and mm. the that exists there um, means that there's this whole subculture, um, it's not even that much of a subculture, but I mean, I guess relative to the whole market it is, um, of brands that basically take American classics like a Hanes white t-shirt or Levi's 501s or something like that, you know, like a core foundational piece and then produce it to the highest quality they possibly can do. So they source the best material that everything is finished by hand and every detail is like poured over and it's completely perfect. Um, The problem is that that comes with a totally ludicrous price tag and you can end up spending hundreds of dollars for a white t-shirt so so Freddie found you know he found that like okay there are labels out there doing this but the prices are crazy so he's like surely something should exist that can do that that is excessively priced or at least reasonably priced um and that was really the 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 germ of the idea of the brand um so he at the time was um he was in a relationship with a um uh, another designer who um who uh kind of like guided him through the the design process of creating the first collection he spoke to his um his tailor who's this absolutely amazing kind of rock star savile row character who has been around for decades and decades and he sort of he made for david bowie for decades and he's made for half the beatles and he's just like like he's a sort of rock star tailor he's absolutely amazing and the three of them collaborated together to kind of like develop this concept for a line which was the first um collection that that basic rights launched and so that was enough of a sort of story rock star designer and a tailor um you know coming together to create a line of clothing to create enough press and enough attention to sort of breathe life into it in that Mm. crucial first year um and and when i met him six months after that launch um They'd had that initial sort of, you know, they'd had that initial kind of, I suppose, um, activity that I just described, and there's a lot of positive response to the product. Um, but he was sort of like, "Now what? <laughs> now where do we go?" Um, yeah. And and really, it was that con- that was the conversation that he and I were having, um, and it was sort of around that, you know, sort of discussion around menswear and the market and culture, and you know, like what the customer would want and all that kind of stuff that led us to decide to start working together. So yeah, I guess that's uh, that's probably the story in a nutshell. Amazing. And I, through us talking, I remember you mentioning that um, part of that vision is being able to see the collection through the eyes of women. How has that evolved as the brand has grown? 
Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's an interesting one, that one. Um, it, it's something that's sort of always been there during the life of the brand. I mean, I just mentioned that you know, it was it was you know, kind of um, uh, an Alex girlfriend of Freddie's that, that helped to kind of realise some of that early product. Um, yeah. And I think it was very, I mean, she was, you know, she was the creative director at the time um, and uh, around the time of the launch. And so kind of her perspective was something that really kind of guided the early days of the brand. It's something that we've sort of held on to ever since. Um, and one of the things that we found um, is that you know, although Freddie and I obviously are, are men, and we, you know, there's plenty of men on our team. Um, that there's a there's a part of our brand's DNA which has been forged by the working relationships that we've established with women throughout the history of the kind of brand's existence. And that mm. it's kind of that perspective is something that brings a degree of freshness, um, uh, something that's just a bit more interesting um, for, for kind of we think for everybody um, as opposed mm. to like a pastiche like kind of. Um, overtly masculine, sort of like or like vision, or sort of over, like overtly hackneyed vision of like sort of what menswear should be through the eyes of men. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's that female perspective. That I think that has has um, uh, has been a it's been a really important, not the only part, but a very important part of of keeping sort of freshness to the whole brand and something that yeah, yeah we just sort of think is is kind of uh, in many ways just sort of what we're about. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. But I love the brand. It's it's you know every time I look at the website, I'm just like wow, it's so it is so fresh. Um, what's been the reaction to your latest collection? Well, I mean, in general, like the the, the reaction's been superb, really. I mean, we've um like for, from our perspective, the what the collection and and product and kind of what is going on there, and more than anything else, is the thing that has been um uh, the thing that we're most proud of and the thing that we're kind of really pushing forward the most. Um, we've we've put a lot of attention into um you know what can we do to to make the uh, to make the product as good as it can be because fundamentally, as a product business, this is at the kind of heart of everything that we do. That if you mm. if you don't have a great product, then it doesn't matter how good your marketing is or your storytelling or how convenient it is to buy you, um, and to a, a, you know a, a large extent what your pricing is, because people aren't going to buy if the product is poor. I mean that's not true at the lowest level of. There's a crossover point that happens at the lowest level of the market where something is so cheap that it'll sell in volume, and frankly people don't care about the quality, which is actually frankly most of the high street. Um, and I don't mean that as slander. I mean that is just fact. I think that when you look at the kind of quality control and you know like quality of products that comes from fast fashion, that's sort of everything geared towards you know overconsumption. The quality is so poor that that it's reflected in product, then falls apart, doesn't last, all that kind of stuff. So like we just you know we like we can't be we can't ever be that as a business, particularly one that has to um, compete in different levels. And we have to have strength when it comes to you know the the foundation of product. Um, so we've been, you know, we've been hard at work over, you know, since launch and, and ever since. It's a big focus of ours, making sure that that's a thing that we execute well on. Um, and we've got a superb team that that makes that happen. We've got we've got an amazing, amazing designer, an amazing production head. We work with great factories. We work with great suppliers, sources, um, or the, the suppliers, um, uh, you know, fabrics and raw materials and things like that. And so um, the that's reflected in the in the reaction we've had in terms of the collection. It's been it's been fantastic. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean to say that 2020, because we're recording this at the beginning of 2021, it doesn't mean that 2020, a year that's completely been, that's been totally dominated by COVID and lockdown and the mm-hmm. impact of that on everybody's lives um, hasn't yeah. been an enormous challenge. Um, it has. It's been an enormous challenge from at every level, um, you know, yeah. both in terms of 
how many you know journalists are now writing about fashion compared to this time 12 months ago through to how many celebrities are wearing things on red carpets and how many red carpet events are happening altogether you know through to you know like any just all the whole fashion ecosystem is something that has been impacted in a way where um normally what we're used to seeing is um is i would probably say um just a larger volume of of um positive reaction to the work that we have done to date but for us the thing that matters more than anything else is that we get that great reaction coming from our customers which is still which has continued irrespective of all of the challenges of last year um, and it's really that kind of the, the the fact that we have such an amazing response from our customers um, that you know we have like it's really, really like very low return rates that we're really proud of. We have amazing feedback that come, you know, that comes from you know the surveys that we have, the direct you know sort of communications we have with our customers and that kind of stuff. And so that's the feedback that matters more than anything else, because ultimately it's the relationship that you have with your customers that gives you the right to exist. Um, and so for us, that's the that's the thing that matters more than anything else. So so the, the, in answer to your question, the the feedback has been great, um, and uh, and that for me is 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 kind of as a result of the focus and the hard work that we put on the product itself. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well deserved as well. Mm-hmm. And sustainability plays a key role in the brand's ethos through several initiatives, yeah. which I'd love you to share with our audience. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we um, so yeah, we do a lot when it comes to sustainability. I mean, like, yeah, I think I think probably it's it's like worth saying that actually we um at the beginning like we. The way that we think about it is that so this is the first fashion business that I've ever run. Um, it's the first business I've ever run. Um, it's the first fashion business that Freddie has ever been involved in, um, and uh, and so as a result, like the, the this has been an incredible learning journey for us on many levels. Um, yes. And one of the places where the learning has been most interesting, I guess, has been finding out more about you know the impact of, of creating clothing um, and the impact that it has on the world, and therefore what I you know, and and then sorry what our response should be to that, um, like. This is going to be. I mean, it's, it's now widely known. Thankfully, that, that depending on who you ask, fashion is either the second or third worst polluting industry on the planet, um, after oil and or food. Again, depends mm. on who you ask. Um, so, you know, as people who sort of operate here, we we have a responsibility to to kind of face up to that and to try and find ways in which we can minimise the impact that you know that, that we as we as an industry have. Um, so, some of the things that we do is. Um, uh, firstly, we um, we ha- recently we kind of we uh, as an e-commerce business we have to ship our product around to customers all around the world, and so mm-hmm. it means um, often, um, particularly when we're sending uh, you know overseas from the UK, and we've got a big customer base in America, so this means quite a lot. We have to send stuff via air, which is um, obviously very kind of taxing in terms of the carbon consumption. Um, yeah. So for us, that like one of the things that we decided to do then was to try was to calculate the amount of carbon that we were responsible for when it came to the the, the distribution of our goods, both getting it from the factories to, to to our distribution center, and then getting it to customers, and then processing any returns that happen. Trying to get a complete sense of what is our car, you know our sort of carbon picture, mm-hmm. um, and then come up uh, come up with offsetting strategies to make sure that we were not only um, uh, that we were that we were holding ourselves to account for that 
carbon consumption and that we were going to, in fact, be a positive impact on the world on that front. So we started an initiative, a partnership with an organization called Trees for the Future, where we plant a tree for every item that's sold. Um, and by our calculation, it means that, that um, the average lifespan of these um, trees, which are mostly planted in areas of sub-Saharan Africa, and they kind of they act as sort of ways of um, helping agriculture and within areas essentially kind of creates hedge spaces in which people can um, or farmers could then grow crops and it's a really effective deterrent against um, animals and um, it just it creates an environment in which they can then you know they can um, produce economically and um, uh, and um, and sustain themselves um, yeah. these trees live for around five years and within the first year of these the trees life um, uh, we have more than offset the carbon that that particular item was responsible for so that was kind of one of the things that we did to start off with um, and we're, we're proud of that partnership and we're going to continue we have big plans for it and we're going to get we're going to lean into that quite a lot in 2020, uh, 2021 in fact um, but those are things that are in the works at the moment and I can't I'll reveal more close to the time <laughs> um, the second thing that we do is that um, that we we work a lot with um, fabrics that have that have been sourced much more sustainably so on the one hand we do things like use a lot of recycled yarns and um, and uh, things like that we go for um, we, we often select uh, fabrics that have had a less environmentally damaging impact um, when they've grown. So we use a lot of tensile, which is something that, um, uh, which is a, a substitute for a couple of other different kinds of fabric, including things like cotton. Um, and um, tensile uses up a lot less land than um, than cotton does, and the land that it uses is much less valuable. And so it takes away, it, it doesn't take away nearly as much valuable land from um, these areas, which are often very poor, um, that are responsible for responsible within the fashion value chain for growing the materials that need that then turn into fabrics so this is a, that's another thing that we do is, is that sourcing and then finally i think probably that um one of the things that i think we we're really proud of well i mean we're proud of all the work we did but we're really proud of this thing which is um that we use a lot of uh, dead stock fabrics and more surplus stock fabrics and that's a phrase that some people seem to know and, and some people don't um, but for those that don't what that um is essentially is um it's a it's fabric fabric that has been overproduced based on an order that somebody else has put in. So if a large um, luxury brand puts an order in for a thousand yards of fabric um, and then um, before the fabric is cut, they find themselves having a few cancellations of orders and things and suddenly they don't need a thousand yards of it, they need 800 yards. Um, then that leaves 200 yards of, of perfectly good fabric, which has gone which gone through the most damaging part of the, 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 uh, the whole fashion process which is the dyeing of fabrics. The creation um, process. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the fabric creation process that is the yeah. worst like offender in terms of the whole value yeah, chain. Yeah, because it's so, so labour-intensive and heavy on the planet. And you it's water-intensive is the water. big impact because it, it, it takes valuable mm -hmm. water and... and 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 contaminates um, it. Contaminates it, exactly, and often poison, poisons wells and creates That's all right. kinds of terrible things. So this fabric's already gone through that. And then um, the, what is the what's a dirty little secret of, of the industry is that what often happens to that fabric is it either gets sent straight to landfill or in some, some cases it gets incinerated. So it literally is like after you've gone through all that terrible process, it then is burned at the end to then, you know, release carbon into the atmosphere. So this yeah. is an awful practice. Yeah. So what we do is 
we go in and we we speak to mills and we we have agents to speak to mills as well and we buy up that 200 yards of fabric and find use for it so you know because it's like yeah. i said I mean, these are often luxury brands that are doing well, i bet so you get some amazing finds doing amazing that yeah amazing out there. beautiful yeah. stuff and it's yeah. unique it's got a story and amazingly yeah. as well is that that from a business perspective we can buy it relatively speaking for pennies on the pound which means yeah. that we can then put this incredibly high quality product which is which we've like saved from the landfill or the furnace yes. and put it into a product and then uh, then offer something an incredibly high quality unique limited edition product that has all these environmental um, credentials at an accessible price point something yeah. way lower than you'd normally be able to buy something of that quality so for us that's the thing that we're really proud of and yeah. and a lot of the product that we work with is is like that um we we uh, we can't work exclusively on that basis because of the fact that we don't like it's hit and miss isn't it yeah well we don't know what's going to come so That's we just right. sort of take what we can what we can get and yeah. exactly yeah. and then for the the um the fabrics that we don't um uh, that we, we we're now at work actually putting together a plan to kind of offset the impact of the fabrics that are you know we're directly responsible for creating in the first place so that's yeah. another big thing that we're moving into in 2021 so anyway i mean this is also a long way of saying that kind of we've been like engaged in a very much a kind of learning process since yeah. the launch of the brand where we've been sort of we assume we don't know and we assume that we that we want to go out and, you know and we, we then intend to go out and find out about how these things work so that we can do something about it and it, we try and use creativity to come up with interesting solutions to these problems that we see and yeah and it will keep evolving because you know the industry is going to keep changing there'll be new things you'll that you'll adapt and you'll discover on this journey which is what makes it so interesting it's so nice not to necessarily have a very formulate way of doing things but to be able to sort of build in this kind of flexibility and be doing something that gives back and actually helps exactly very yeah. satisfying yeah um, and we might be small but our thinking is that um that you know it, it, it's up to brands that are being launched now to try and find new ways of doing it um, yeah and because you know with 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 the notable exceptions of a couple of um brands who i really admire for their efforts i think probably top of the tree are patagonia and nike to be honest i mean nike yeah. has, has this association of minded people who don't know much about this space to think that they're big offenders quite the opposite is, is true yes. they're, they're the absolute opposite. Exactly. Yeah, the absolute exactly so with opposite. yeah I know I've done a lot of recruitment for nike in the past and yeah they are they're just the forerunners in trying to find better ways new ways create the technology create the opportunities for people look after the planet i mean gosh the in the the the, the nitty-gritty of what they actually do is incredible absolutely and you know but it, but most companies aren't that you know so um at yeah. least most large companies and established companies aren't that they would rather continue yeah. business as usual and so for us we, we see a certain sense of responsibility um particularly with a brand name as loaded as ours you know like what's our basic yeah. rights you know we, <laughs> we it's something that we that we think about a lot and we kind of we try and lean into and we try and to live up to the kind of expectations of our brand name and and one of the things is the impact that we have on the planet um yeah. so yeah we, we think we see it as our responsibility and it's a, it's a thing that is like integral to all we do it's good it's good that your name holds you accountable i love that so <laughs> 2020 was no doubt for all of us a real topsy-turvy year what did you learn through the experience Oh God! Um, the, <laughs> okay, the, the honest answer. Thing. <laughs> yeah, the, the honest answer. Long, yeah. 
Oh, we yeah, there are too many lessons to mention, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, fortunately, depending on which way you look at it. I mean, I think that the the, the first lesson that we learned is in you know when the, when lockdown started and the sort of in, and we felt the impact, which was in March yeah. of 2020. Yes. The biggest thing that we learned was um, was how responsive um, our audience was to you know the, the the works that we were doing, the things we were doing to kind of to make sure that our, our staff was kept safe and that and that we were you know that we were thinking about the community and doing initiatives to the community and stuff. Um, and and for, and for me, um, it really was that. It was that that we we. It was the realization that we didn't just have a customer list and a list of people who bought from us. Is that we had a community, um, and we found through the direct, you know, the channels of communication that our customers sort of found us by and were kind of messaging us by and stuff like that. The response that we got to to you know, kind of out the statements we put out at the start of everything was was amazing actually. Um, and the power of our community, I think, is probably the single biggest, most positive lesson that I can think of. Um, I think as well as that though from a kind of business perspective and the sort of the the perspective of trying to keep a show on the road mm-hmm. um, is that this has proved a real opportunity to kind of practice grit um, because you know that sort yeah. of grit and resilience are just are, are, are fundamentally important to getting anything done anything worthwhile done um, and when a difficult time comes along you can sort of um, like if you are able to frame it correctly you can frame it as something which is an opportunity to develop that particular thing which is so essential so I think I mean like it's, it's a little bit like this there's that phrase um, that I, I think I read was I think it's true to Winston Churchill which is that when you're going through hell keep going and yeah. like the I mean I, I don't, that sounds a bit dramatic but this 2020 wasn't exactly hell for us in the way it has been for so many people but it certainly was extremely challenging I mean, when, yeah. people, when people have such big behavioral changes they suddenly don't want to buy clothes they want to you know they want to spend money on di- in different ways they want uh-huh, to save uh-huh. money yeah exactly yeah I mean like e-commerce went through in the first 10 weeks of the of the, the lockdown, um, e-commerce went through 10 years worth of development in terms of growth. Now that didn't happen because there were clothes that were sold. That happened because yoga mats were being sold and because like candles for the home were being sold and because PlayStations yeah. were being sold. Yeah. So, you know, so although, you know, like although there was all this growth, it wasn't found in, in fashion except yeah. for a few little pockets. Um, so for us, it certainly was a challenge, but like the wisdom in that kind of when you're going through hell, keep going, saying is really that that the the response to being in a difficult position is to not stop like that's the way i see it you have to keep pushing forward keep innovating keep finding opportunities um and i think that from that perspective 2020 is a year and the early months of 2021 so far have have acted like that and it's been it's frankly it's been an amazing experience one of those interesting things where you know you have these experiences in life that you probably wouldn't want to repeat but you are very grateful they've happened um that's because it's what you've learned from it absolutely what would you say has been your greatest achievement so far um well i mean i i think that for us as a brand i think the the greatest achievement achievements have certainly been the positive things that we hear back from our customers it's sort of it it's it's seeing the love that people have for our product um that you know that 
it's like this is my go-to pair of trousers this is my go-to shirt this is the stuff that I can't live without that's the thing that I feel feel really proud about because as as, as, you know as humble as it is and as modest as it is um you're lifting somebody's day or month or or, you know like a week whatever because of something you've brought into the world like that for me is more important than anything else it's better than the celebrity placements we've had although I'm very proud of those it's better than than the press it's like um, it's you know and the accolades that that again, however modestly we are a small company, but you know I think we punch above our weight there. Um, it's ultimately always about the, the the good things that we hear and the love that we hear from our customers. I, there's nothing for me that beats that. Amazing. That's such that's such a nice that's such a nice thing to hear. And for other emerging brands that may be listening to this, what are the major challenges as we navigate towards a new normality? Do you think? Um, well, I mean, I think that like. The, the truth is that there 100% is a new normality that's emerging. I mean, I think mm. that, that the world post-COVID is going to be a completely different world from, mm. from the world that we knew 12 months ago. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, of, while at the same time, every business's challenges are clearly different and will always be different. They'll always be unique to that business. Um, I think that how to remain relevant um, in customers' lives um, in a, a world in which that amount of advancement that I described earlier in 10 years worth of, 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 um, of growth within 10 weeks, how you stay relevant to the customer's life after that is the biggest challenge. And the way that I think about it is that sort of really that, um, that Amazon, like without, you know, I'm not going to say anything, anything new here at all, but Amazon changed everything. Um, and, what, and what I mean by that is it, it, is it changed everybody's expectations about about you know what retail should be um it's yeah. it's you know like the convenience the selection and and the the low price that that yeah. is an outrageously powerful combination of things that come together to form our expectations as consumers about what you know retail should be so well, i think like the, i'm not in truck with something an interesting yeah. that i've had during lockdown is that it used to be quite focused on low price, but actually it's become about taking a great product and being being able to make it accessible through the convenience of Amazon. I feel like convenience has played a massive part over lockdown in their remit. I know for myself, there's things that I ordinarily shop around the internet looking for the best price on that I can mm-hmm. now get on a subscription model on Amazon. And I'm like, happy days to not have yeah. this time doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's completely changed your behavior as, as a result. Yeah. And the behavior of all of our customers. Your loyalty and... goes towards them. So all of a sudden you haven't got to go um, Googling and, and, and looking through five different websites. All of a sudden you can go straight to Amazon and get, yeah. and get a better deal than all those five other places that you'd have to have trawled through. It, it's yeah, completely. Exactly, and so in that climate, the question for brands is: How do you create? How do you deliver value? And yeah. so for us, like we we think that we can't. We certainly can't compete with, with that, and and you know very few can, um, if anybody can. Um, so our focus instead is to is to continue to make sure that the product is as good as we can possibly make it. That is the yeah. you know the that's table stakes. That's you know you have to sort of that's your entry ticket. Like you have to pay yes. that, and then um, and. And then on top of that, it's to it's to create. A, for us, it's all about 
the story, the reason why we exist. It's about explaining all the things, some of the things that we've been touching on so far to do with the history of our brand, our position within the culture, um, our relationship to, 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 you know, like some music and other things like that and, and the sort of world of creativity in general. And to repeatedly find interesting, creative ways of communicating that and then distributing that, those stories um, in a way that, that is relevant to people. So I think that that really is the challenge is, is, is kind of the, the, the answer for everybody is going to be different but the challenge I think is how do we compete in a, in a world in which the consumer's expectations have just fundamentally changed yeah. so I think that's probably what I'd say yeah I think it's a very very valid point the brand has had some incredible press if you had to pick a favorite what jumps out at you Oh, well, yeah, we have. Uh, I've been really proud of the press that we've got so far. Um, we've we've had a really good response from from editors, from influencers, from you know anybody yeah. who's seen the product, basically. Um, but I think that the things that stand out um, are probably the brand profile pieces that we've seen. In we had one in Esquire and one in GQ that I was really proud of. Um, uh, particularly the Esquire one. It kind of um, it came out just over a year ago, and and um, and it told the story of the brand in a way that I thought was really true and. Um, and it was accurate. And the journalist who I'd spent a, a reasonable amount of time talking to before, I, I, just, I really liked him. I thought he was a really good guy. Um, he, he, he took the time to listen and to kind of use it. He was interested. And that came across um, in the, the profile that was written. Um, oh. I mean, we've had, you know, we have seen... We've seen some amazing celebrity placements as well. So, like, you know, we've seen the likes of Donald Glover, Matthew McConaughey, Ryan Reynolds. Um, I mean, it's almost too many to mention, really. Um, um, so, like, that, that's been fantastic as well. It's just sort of, in many ways, quite surreal seeing all of these sort of outrageously that's famous really people good. wearing your yeah. creations, <laughs> um, which has been great. And, and yeah. we have, a, you know, a, a fantastic team member to thank for all of that. Um, that's, yeah. um, so, you know, we'd like, and, you know, she, who knows, she knows who she is. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, we. Um, I mean, I think those for me are the, the, the things that we've been proudest about. Oh, I mean, it's an amazing achievement. Amazing to you know to to be able to say those people have worn your clothes. So yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, share with us an unexpected turn of events that delivered surprising results. Oh. Um, well, I, I mean, as we're talking about press, I think. I mean, I, I, I remember an unexpected event um, that delivered, I mean, in many ways, quite unsurprising results. <laughs> but, but, we had, um, but, um, but I mean, I just mentioned that we, you know, we got on to Donald Glover or Charlie yeah. Chaplin. Like there was a there was a moment when we when we had a we had a placement there. Um, again, it was about a year and a half ago, I think. That that kind of that was a massive moment for us. And in fact, that actually was the thing that led to the Aspire piece. Um, so we got so we had a, a we have we still sell it. Have a style. It's a um, short sleeve black camp collar shirt made out of this fantastic um, uh, tensile fabric that we spoke about earlier. It's, you know, dead stock um, uh, uh, fabric that we source. Um, that style um, through one of the stylists made its way onto Donald Glover, who then wore it. Um, um, uh, front and centre for the official Lion King full cast photo. So there was this, you know, the photo with about thirty of the actors, voice actors, and stuff that were that were on that, and included um, Beyonce, Seth Rogen, John Oliver, um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and then like right in the middle was Childish Gambino wearing a basic right shirt for this like official thing. It was just the, the most amazing 
result for us um, and the most gratifying um, piece of placement I've ever seen. Um, and as soon as that happened, um, I mean, like this is what I say when I'm, when I'm in this fairly unsurprising results because we then just instantly sold out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and, and we've, we've kind of, um, ever since then, we've sort of um, not really been able to make them fast enough, to be honest. So I think that, that kind of, you know, he, he's just such an amazing um, person in the culture, you know, like he, he's sort of one of those multi-talented, incredible people. Yeah. And, and, and so for, for us, it's sort of like he's sort of the best kind of brand ambassador that we can Absolutely. really hope for. Um, it's like sort of center of the bullseye for the for the official photo and kind of yeah. sitting right there. And so for us, that was so gratifying. And like I say, we just we haven't been able to make them fast enough since. Wow, that's a brilliant story. I love that. What are your thoughts on brand collaborations? And if you could choose anyone to collaborate with, who would be at the top of your list? Uh, well, I mean, we've, yeah, we, we do do collaborations. Um, we've got a sort of like specific, um, philosophy when it comes to them. I mean, like, um, I think the answer to answer your question though is that I would absolutely love to do a collaboration with Lewis Leathers, who are this just like incredible, 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 um, uh, sort of leather jacket and kind of, um, and, uh, biking inspired, uh, producer based here in London um they're kind of like it's for for it's a sort of you, in some ways you kind of need to know about them to know how great they are but they're, they're, they're the top of the tree in my view um and and they kind of represent in many ways what we look for when it comes to partner to collaborate with um so what and what that is really is is, is somebody or a, a brand or an individual um, who is a true expert in their area so the collaborations we've done to date have included one with Aero Leathers, who are another leather jacket specialist, mm. actually, who are just as great as Lewis Leathers. They're, they're amazing. Um, they're based up in Scotland. Um, uh, and we actually first worked with them. It's a really cool story. We first worked with them because, um, because back in autumn, winter 18, the collection that we launched about two and a half years ago, um, the creative brief for that was um, connected to music and connected to, you know, uh, um, our relationship to music was yeah. about um, David Bowie's uh, Berlin. So it's kind of late 1970s era Berlin um, yeah. where it's sort of, it's a little bit, you know, it's like sort of, um, it's like where East Germany meets West Germany and, yeah. um, and uh, the, like just before the, the fall of the Berlin Wall mm. when, you know, these people that, uh, people that were living in Berlin were often kind of, um, you know, like the, wearing this old um, Americana stuff that was actually dating right. back to the Second World War. Yeah. So there's all this like sort of interesting collaboration between that kind of like, between sort of harsh communism, um, the kind of freedom of West Berlin, and then kind of Americana that has its history kind of back in the 1940s. Like it's a really interesting um, sort of uh, space. So we like, we wanted to make it about David Bowie's Berlin. And so um, he recorded three albums when he was living in Berlin, one of which was Heroes. And on the front, uh, which is I think probably the best of those three albums, but he, um, he, he's wearing a leather jacket in that that we thought, well, we have to make that leather jacket. Um, the problem was is that we didn't have, we didn't work with any factories that could make a jacket like that. So we, we began a sourcing exercise and started kind of reaching out to people who we thought we could work with. And one of them were, um, was a, a specialist up in Scotland called Aero. Um, and so we got in touch with them and, and you know, started chatting and started telling them kind of what we wanted to do. And the guy up there, Denny, who's a 
great guy. Um, said, said, yeah, 100% I can make that jacket. Um, I thought you'd like to know actually that my dad made that specific jacket that's on the, that's on the album cover. Oh. And we said, no way. He said, yeah. So he, when he was making jackets back in the 1970s, he made that. They made it for Bowie. He then got shot in it for Heroes. So we're like, well, that's too perfect. We have to make it with you then. So we collaborated with them to release what we then called the Heroes jacket, which was the first interpretation of that jacket since it appeared on the album cover, you know, um, however many years ago. Um, and again, like that's been something we haven't been able to make fast enough. Like quite literally, we're sold out of that most times because there's only so many that Arrow can make at once and, yes. and we can't sell them fast enough. Yeah. 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 So, so that, that for us, yeah, that for us was a perfect collaboration. Um, yeah. We also worked with Mertz Bichuan and about 18 months ago with this amazing jersey specialist in, in the Alps in Germany. Um, nice. They kind of, they, they use these like fantastic vintage looms to sort of create effects with finishing stuff with that and fabric that you can't really get elsewhere. Um, and then most recently we worked with Claude Simonon, who's actually the son of the bassist of The Clash, Paul Simonon, um, yeah. who's a, a supremely talented goldsmith um, yeah. and des- uh, developed with us a design that we called the Navigator Ring. Yeah. Um, we were super proud of that and it was just amazing. So these kinds of guys, like these are the kinds of people that we want to collaborate with, like specialists and, you know, like people who are amazing at what they do. Um, and, the you know, like there's many people out there like that, but for me, probably Lewis yeah. Leathers would be the, the one that I'd want to go next. Excellent. How exciting. Watch this space. <laughs> what can we look forward to from Basic Rights in 2021? Well, I mean, we, um, we've got a lot of great product coming out. I mean, that's probably unsurprising yeah, given what I've spoken about in terms of our priorities. Yeah. Um, so we've got some amazing product coming out starting this month, going into next month. Well, actually, for, for the rest of the year, to be honest. Um, so, okay. yeah, I'm super excited about that. Um, and, I mean, really, we're just sort of trying to we, – we'll continue to try and grow and find new customers. Um, I mean, for us, I think that, like, that our next priority is going to be making sure that our brand story and the interesting kind of rich brand story that we have and that we're lucky enough to have is um is coming through and that people yeah. sort of understand it and see it. So we're going to be yeah. we're going to be kind of you know working a lot on that and um and working a lot on products and trying to find new customers. That's our focus. Excellent. And that leads me to our closing question, which is this: Can you believe we're at the end already? If you could hire any three people in the world to lend their expertise, who would you choose and why? Oh, um, well, uh, I mean, I think. For, for us as a business that we've got different kinds of priorities so I think there's different kinds of people to that we probably want to look at I mean um, this might be controversial depending on <laughs> what your view is um, but I think probably the first answer would be Jeff Bezos <laughs> and um, quite a bit, oh, does he yeah yeah well because yeah. I mean I think that you know while I appreciate that he's um, he's obviously a divisive figure um, I mean it's a time in which uh, wealth inequality is arguably one of the most destabilizing factors in the current climate he's still somebody he's a man of absolutely extraordinary vision um, and you know and and the kind of relentless way in which he went about building something which I think is inarguably the world's most customer-centric company I think is the way the business needs to be done now Um, I think you start thinking about the customer and their lives and their problems and you know what they need and then and build everything around that you know whether it's yeah. or the way that you deliver the message or anything. Yeah. And I can't think of anybody on the planet right now that, that at least that I'm aware of, um, that, that, is, that is better at it than him. Um, no, because that was um, the foundation behind the vision, was just yeah, being exactly. able to 
to create that, and he's yeah. done it. So yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I wouldn't want to put him in charge of any you know um, any product campaigns or any either like sort of photo shoots or anything like no. that. <laughs> but yeah, in terms yeah. of building our systems and improving our thinking, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think, but then I mean, because we're you know a fashion business, that like part of it is the sort of you know is the sort of guts of the business, which sort of that speaks yeah. to in a way. But then there's other things as well. You know, that we need to think about um, how do you to, how do you deliver interesting product that sort of has relevance in the culture um and for me again um like i think that there's a there's an inarguable king of that at the moment. I think it's probably Virgil Abloh. So I, I'd, I'd say that he would probably be second because I think that, yeah. funnily enough, I'm not actually a huge fan of his, of his work or output, or at least most of it. I mean, there have been some collections that he's done at Vuitton that I've really liked, but mostly um, I'm relatively indifferent. But I just think he has an extraordinary talent um, at understanding um, uh, the culture in general and then how to harness his creativity and the creativity of others often it's through um, uh, collaborations and things like that, to, to, you know, to speak to the culture in a fresh and interesting way. I just think that, that that's what he does. Um, and I yeah, think that, that, you know, that's the reason behind his success. Yeah. And, it's the, and it's the reason why, you know, and, and it's, it's a fundamentally important thing to be able to do well if you want to speak to, the, you know, to kind of connect with the culture. So I think that he'd probably mm. be my second. Um, and then I think the third would probably be um, it would probably be Dylan Jones. Um, and the, the reason why is because brands like ours now um, are built on their ability to tell their story and to connect to people through the content that they make. And in my view, he's simply the king of that content as it relates to our space. Because, you know, I sort of, I look at GQ a little bit like, um, and, you know, I, um, I don't mean any disrespect to Esquire, who, I've, who I have a very high opinion of as well. <laughs> and I've just, and I've said so on, already on this, you know, um, so far in this conversation. But um, I see GQ as sort of being a little bit like The Economist in that, like, what it does, it's just, uh, it's just a head it's just head and shoulders above everybody else. It just stands in a slightly different bracket. Um, yeah. I mean, like the only exception to that, of course, is Esquire, who I do have a high opinion of. But that's because of Dylan Jones, in my view. I think that um, I think that he's a, he's somebody who understands how to sort of how to, how to captivate and how to tell stories that that speak to people and that resonate with people um, within our space, at least. Um, yeah. I mean, I think if I was being a bit more creative in my answer here, I might sort of think about great film directors are really, you know, um, really uh, kind of, uh, you know, admire so people like Steve McQueen or like Paul Thomas Anderson or something like that, thinking that, that there's there's so much overlap now, I've, I think, between wow. excellent content and yes. and our business, the yeah. commerce that we're involved in, that I think that that has to be something that's thought about. Um, so, yeah, I think the answer is Dylan Jones. And if I'm being a bit more creative, I'd say probably Steve McQueen or Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> nice. Good answers. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been so fascinating to get the inside line and sort of hear a bit of the magic behind the brand and sort of how well loved it is by the customer as well. So thank you so much for sharing your uh, insights with us today. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's it's a very interesting time to be kind of, you know, to be a brand out there in the world trying to very. connect with customers um, and trying to kind of understand how people's lives are changing and how to sort of keep in, in, on top of that. So for me, this is just a, yeah. an, a, just an incredibly intellectually rewarding line of work. Um, and and, and, it's, it, and I, I love talking about it. I love discussing it. I love thinking about it. So this has been a great conversation. And, yeah. It has. It's been really enjoyable. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head 
said there, you know, and I think back to sort of the history of um, emerging brands, which, you know, last had their heyday probably in the um, 80s and 90s. Um, and then got completely obliterated by the mass retailers. Yeah. And here we are again with a complete reversal of fortunes where the, the mass market retailers have been obliterated. They've kind of mm. played themselves out. And all of a sudden, we've got this wave of emerging brands coming through who are like, we're going to recreate the marketplace. We yeah. want to do something authentic. So mm. it's so interesting that authenticity is really the thing that's having its moment. And I think that's, something that basic rights really stands for it's the thing that comes through so strongly yeah totally i mean it it, it is the, it's sort of the, the story of the last 30 years really it's sort of slowly it's been building and building and building is the kind uh, of emergence of the long tail you know it's sort of uh, like it's these interesting brands that exist in that long tail and and the only way that they can survive and keep moving forward is if they you know they keep thinking about to keep thinking about their customers they keep innovating and that's always what we're trying to do yeah, no, it's, that's what it, that's the name of the game. Never a more exciting time, especially with all the tools at our disposal in terms of e-commerce. So, yeah, mm. very exciting. Mm. Mm. Well, thank Absolutely. you so much. It's been really enjoyable. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Fiona. It has been fascinating hearing Jack's story and taking a glimpse behind the scenes at Basic Rights. Jack walks us through the story of his singing scholarship at university, followed by an MBA in business, which led him to briefly join Mr Porter, only to leave before his probation period was up, after realising the corporate environment was not the best much for how he is wired, which is as a generalist with an entrepreneurial spirit. As events conspired by chance, a friend introduced Jack to his best mate from school, who was in a band and has set up a menswear label, and he thought they would get on well. They met for a drink and a chat, in which Jack became acquainted with Freddie Cowan of the Vaccines, a band he had never heard of, despite their success, and his menswear label Basic Rights, inspired by Freddie not being able to find elevated, affordable, foundational menswear he could throw on during the band's intensive recording sessions in New York for their third album. They have since honed their skills in producing accessible, stylish menswear, cheered on through the challenges of COVID by the incredible reaction from their customers. Sustainability plays a key role in the band's ethos, realised through several initiatives in which they offset their carbon footprint by supporting Trees for the Future, who plant hedge trees in sub-Saharan Africa to protect farmers in their mission to grow crops. They also source recycled yarns and yarns with lower environmental impacts, such as Tencel, which is much kinder to the planet than cotton, for example. Using excess dead stock fabrics for their rubbish collection enables the brand to offer limited edition, high quality styles at affordable prices. Jack is most proud of the positive customer feedback and their love for the product, alongside the celebrity placements and press that the brand has attracted. Our post-COVID world will undoubtedly be a new reality and the focus is on making the best possible product and finding interesting creative ways to tell their story. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with another inspirational individual. And if you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries.